It's Thursday, October 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We're in the final stretch of the 2020 election, and the Joe Biden campaign is outraising and outspending the Trump camp. Joe Biden is airing ads in battleground states, while President Trump is canceling orders and opting for live rallies. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico, joins us for how the campaigns are spending cash leading up to Election Day. Next, we're getting some mixed results on a rheumatoid arthritis drug that was showing some promise in treating patients with COVID-19. In a large study, the drug showed promise in reducing deaths of people who were admitted to the ICU. In some smaller studies, the drug showed no benefit. Still, the drug has been added to a growing list of possible therapeutics. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for more. Finally, we take a look into the future of office work. Things are changing because of the pandemic, and it's not just more working from home. There are considerations into long-awaited innovations in office design, how to restructure the work week and hours in the day, and even company perks could be changing. Eleanor Cummins, contributor to Popular Science, joins us for how the office will never be the same. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Look, he's gonzo, folks. He's gone. He has no idea. And the people that are running that party are radical, far-left maniacs, and you can't let this. This is the most important election in the history of our country. Joining us now is Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Zach. Thanks for having me back. Going into the last few weeks here of the campaign right before Election Day, we're looking at the financials between both campaigns, President Trump and Joe Biden, and the Trump campaign is being outraised and outspent by Biden's campaign by quite a bit of dollars. This has a bunch of different ramifications. Joe Biden is uh, putting out a lot of TV ads on the air right now. And with not so much money, President Trump is having to do more rallies and things like that. So, Zach, tell us a little bit about what we're learning about this. We've already known that the Biden campaign has significantly outraised the Trump campaign over the course of the month. And then how much of that money is actually going to the campaign versus the party committee versus some joint fundraising committees is that the Biden campaign has a lot more money. And this close to the election is a big deal that the Biden campaign has significantly more money. They're spending a lot more, but they also just have more in reserves as well, too. You know, we're going to find out on Thursday, later on Thursday, probably when the debate happens, knowing how the campaigns operate, how much money they have over the final two weeks. But basically, Biden can spend on whatever he wants, and Trump has to be more selective. You know, we're seeing things for Joe Biden on TV ads, like running during the World Series, we see an ad. Running, if you watch a football game, you see an ad, a national ad during the football game. And Biden does that because he has so much money that spending it is not really a luxury for him. He can kind of go wherever he wants. Versus the president, who doesn't have that much money, who's being outraised, has to cut back on his even regional ad buys in specific states and really focus on his core battleground. Over the course of this whole thing, we had been hearing just huge amounts of money that were being raised by the Trump campaign. But where did it all go? I know the Associated Press was also doing some reporting on this and just kind of saying that they were wasting money, basically, in a lot of different areas. Yeah, that's the big question, right, is that what seemed like an insurmountable cash lead that the president had in this election kind of evaporated. Part of that, Trump is still raising a good chunk of money. It's not like he's not raising money. It's just that Joe Biden has been raising so much. You really can't overstate how much money Joe Biden and DNC is raising. They're raising just an absurd amount of money. But the president, too, maybe has not been the most prudent with his spending. You know, think back to the Super Bowl, right? 
the president bought national airtime during the Super Bowl early in the year before voters were really making up their mind or doing anything like that. That's not going to make or break an individual campaign, but a campaign that makes that spending that goes out and spends in the Super Bowl, that gets really high value real estate on things like YouTube earlier in the year, which cost a heck of a lot of money to get that homepage ad on YouTube, something the Trump campaign did more than once. Were they spending their money correctly? You know, Trump declared that he was running for re-election formally earlier than any president in history. He did it the day he was inaugurated. So they've been raising money and raising money and raising money. And it turns out they're just spending a lot of it, too. Where is all of the money coming from with regards to both campaigns? So it's kind of two separate universes. For the campaigns themselves, the campaigns, you know, you can't really give more than $2,800. So no matter how big of a check you cut, only $2,800 of your money can go toward that campaign. The party committees can take in a lot more than that for various different accounts. But at the end of the day, you know, and the actual campaign can only get a little bit. But the Super PAC universe, which are not affiliated officially with the campaigns, of course, they can't coordinate. But, you know, there is some synergy there, we'll say. The Super PACs are kind of a different story. There, we've seen a lot of really rich Republican donors kind of come to the rescue of the president and give money to these super PACs. These super PACs operate independently from the campaign. They are not, can't coordinate with the campaign, but they, you know, everyone knows what the battleground states are. Things like Preserve America, America First Action had a lot of money coming into them for the month of September. And that's what's helping the president kind of close these gaps in some of these swing states that even though his campaign is being outspent, that these Republican super PACs are coming in and backing him up. That's not to say Democrats don't have their own big dollar super PAC. Priority USA Action, which is a major Democratic super PAC, raised a decent chunk of money at a kind of super PAC that had been super quiet up until this last month called Future Forward, went from raising almost no money to raising $66 million over the course of a month and put that all to TV ads backing Joe Biden. So that's happening, too. But that's where the big money comes in. It comes in with these super PACs. And that's where the president is hoping to make up some ground, basically, that, you know, he, he's not the one directing the super PACs. He can't legally do that but they can still kind of close the gap in states like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania where the Trump campaign itself is being massively outspent, especially on TV ads. In an election cycle like this one, how important is all of this money in the last few weeks to run ads? Because the president's still doing a lot of rallies. Obviously, the debate offers them another chance to get out in front of the public. But we have reports about millions and millions of people already casting their vote, you know, in early voting and whatnot. So how important is all this last bit of cash? So I guess the first thing is money ain't everything. Just ask President Hillary Clinton that. She, of course, massively outraced and outspent the president, President Trump, and she is not the president, obviously. So money isn't everything. But even these last-minute donations can be quite significant. You know, it may be a little bit too late at this point. It's never too late to book TV, and which might get more and more expensive, and there's a limited resource. But campaigns can always pour this money back into things like digital ads and chasing voters. Just to use a state like North Carolina, for example. In North Carolina, there's incredibly detailed information for who would actually cast an absentee ballot or who was actually voted in person, right? So if you have just an excess amount of money, if you just have a lot of money, you can turn the money you have into chasing votes, being like, okay, we think this person so-and-so is our supporter. We can now try to target these people who we know or who we think will support us but haven't yet cast their ballot and spend more money per click, spend more money per eyeball to get a view to try to get those people to return their votes. Or it's even things like sending text messages, things like that. All costs money. And the cash advantage isn't just advertising. It also goes into things like voter contact, voter, tracing voters down, things like that as well. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks as always. This stuff.
study was one of the largest that looked specifically at patients in the ICU. And they found that if this drug was given within two days of arriving in the ICU, that it really could be a lifesaver. 37% of patients typically die in that situation. Given tocilizumab, only 27% die. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. I've been very interested throughout this whole pandemic on the development of vaccines and other therapeutic drugs to help fight COVID-19 and, you know, people getting access to these drugs and everything. We're getting news of a rheumatoid arthritis drug. It has a very difficult name to pronounce. I'll let you handle that, Karen. But there's some studies showing that it could help in patients admitted to the ICU. There's some other studies contradicting that, saying, uh, right. showing some mixed results. So, Karen, tell us a little bit about this drug. Sure. It's called tocilizumab, and it is a monoclonal antibody, which is the same kind of drug that President Trump had when he was treated for COVID. And it's very specific. It addresses, if people have heard of cytokine storm, that's been talked about in terms of COVID. When the immune system overreacts, it produces these products called cytokines. Tocilizumab goes after one called IL-6 and it tamps it down. And that seems to have a benefit for certain patients at a certain point in the disease. Again, as you said, the research has been a little bit contradictory, continues to be contradictory. This study was one of the largest that looked specifically at patients in the ICU. And they found that if this drug was given within two days of arriving in the ICU, that it really could be a lifesaver. 37% of patients typically die in that situation. Given tocilizumab, only 27% died. So still a lot, but yeah. not nearly as many. And that's one of the very interesting things that even the author of the paper on this study noted that the idea of different drugs being used at different times during the COVID-19 treatment is very important. And we see that, you know, with like drugs like remdesivir, they say, you know, you got to catch that early kind of thing. The steroids are probably used after that, kind of in keeping with the way President Trump was treated for COVID-19. So we have all these different drugs that might do different things, but it's the timing is so critical with it. So what seems to happen is in the first phase of the disease, the virus is replicating like crazy in your body. And so an antiviral like remdesivir makes sense when that's what's driving the problem is this viral replication that tamps it down. In a later stage of the disease, it's the immune reaction that seems to be driving a lot of the problems that people have. And so then it makes sense to play around with the immune system. In most cases, it seems that tamping it down seems to help. It may be possible in some cases that people need to need it amped up so they can fight off the disease. That's not really clear yet. And then another, I don't know if it's a distinct phase, but another problem that tends to happen are blood clots. And so there's research going on now to see, and a lot of people have been receiving anti-blood clotting medication to try to prevent blood clots, because that is one of the things that kills people with COVID. At the same time that we're learning about this and getting some different findings on this rheumatoid arthritis drug, we're finding out that some other drugs have been kind of put on the on the back burner. Remdesivir is one of those that where people are saying, well, it doesn't maybe provide all the benefits that it might have. The other ones in that group, hydroxychloroquine, which you've heard of, and then a few others that they're saying really show no benefit to people that are hospitalized. So the World Health Organization has been doing a very large trial for months now, and they decided back in the summer that hydroxychloroquine was not effective, and they took it out of this protocol. 
it was one of the arms of this study and they stopped studying it because it was ineffective. Remdesivir went all the way. Their findings in the end was that that drug did not have any benefits. There have been criticisms about that trial and there's a large NIH trial underway also looking at remdesivir that seems more positive. So I think the jury is still out. A lot of doctors I've spoken to do think that that their patients are getting benefit from remdesivir, at least shortening their, their hospital stay. So I think it's just remains to be seen, unfortunately, on that one. Yeah. And with remdesivir, if I remember correctly, when the initial findings were coming out, and they might have been coming out from their very own company, I think they said the hospital stays were reduced by four or five days or something like that. So uh, this is all just, uh, you know, we're kind of rolling with the punches on all this and just kind of seeing whatever works. So back to this rheumatoid arthritis drug, and I just cannot pronounce it for the life of me. What have doctors said? Are they going to try to continue using it? Or are they just going to stay away from it until they see more findings? What we haven't heard from yet are the people who make these recommendations to doctors. There are the Infectious Disease Society of America, the NIH. They do make recommendations to doctors about what they should proceed with. And we haven't heard yet from these recommending committees. So I'm not sure what will happen there. But I know that tocilizumab is in use in many hospitals today. So I assume some people will continue to use it at least until we have something more definitive. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. mentioned that ventilation is going to be a really big thing. I think there's also the potential for using ultraviolet light and and other things like that to kind of manage the potential for germ transmission. Joining us now is Eleanor Cummins, contributor to Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Eleanor. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about the future of the workplace. You know, we've been talking about this for some time as we've been going through the pandemic, getting back to work, getting back to the office, getting back to normal. It's looking like it's going to take a little longer than we thought initially. <laughs> and there's all sorts of different things that we've talked about in, in different form or fashion. Ventilation is an important thing just to keep airflow moving. Social distancing needs to ma- be maintained in the workplace. But there's a lot that goes into it, as I mentioned. So, Eleanor, tell us a little bit about what the modern office will look like once we kind of start going back to work. People have been going back, but it's not really been come back full force just yet. Yeah, it's incredible to think that just back in February, right, we were all going into work every day. And now for a lot of office workers, it looks like we're not going to be back in the office until probably sometime next year. And so with that in mind, I think that there are going to be a lot of safety precautions that are developed and implemented in order to make that return to the office possible. You mentioned that ventilation is going to be a really big thing. I think there's also the potential for using ultraviolet light and and other things like that to kind of manage the potential for germ transmission. And then there are also just sort of the procedural things, right, where you make sure that employees are not bumping into each other, are masked and socially distanced until there's a vaccine. And so that's going to be a huge part of it, certainly. We're probably also going to use technological components to ensure that safety practice as well. One thing that is already helping a lot of companies that have had a portion of their workforce return to the office are contract tracing apps that are installed on your phone. And so if you get sick, they can tell you everyone you've interacted with in the office. And that lets you know everybody track down really quickly who might be affected, get them tested, and hopefully confirm they're safe and able to continue working. You made mention in the article about open office floor plans. A lot of places have this, you know, low cubicles so people can kind of see each other. That will look like to be 
the trend that everybody was going, but this might be something that actually changes now because we need more safety precautions. So the open office floor plan has really been widely adapted, not because people enjoy it, but because it is very economically feasible. When you want to fit a lot of people into a room, you know, an open office floor plan, a hot desk situation, like that can really up the capacity. But now that we're in a situation where contact is a potentially dangerous circumstance, we're going to have to be looking at ways to divide employees up to create spaces and zones so that people can work distantly. And I think that in the process, that might actually allow us to build an office that is not only more sanitary, but also more comfortable. Because when you look at the research on open floor plans, not only are they already sort of reducing face-to-face contact in the sense that people aren't talking over the table to their friend, they're slacking them from across the room, they're also spaces that can be really loud and especially amplify other people's voices and conversation, which is not at all conducive to working for most people. So, you know, potentially we could come out of this not only safer, but a lot happier and more productive at work. Working from home, that's mm. going to be a big part about uh, of a lot of companies' return to work plans. There's places like Twitter that said, you don't have to ever come back to the office now. And a lot of other places that are kind of doing some of that stuff. That coupled with a, a restructured work week. If you're working from home, you right. don't have to work a continuous nine to five. You can split it up. Or even if you do come into the office, same thing. Companies are toying with those ideas now. On the whole, there was a real skepticism, I think, among, you know, office work culture leaders about letting people work from home. The idea that they're going to be not working from home, but shirking from home, as it's often described. And so I think the pandemic has really reset that perspective and shown just how much people can do in their pajamas. And I think that when we go back, there's going to be a lot more trust in employees that they can design their own schedules and that they can work not just from home, but when it's safe to move around from wherever they want to, right? From a local coffee shop instead of from the office. And I think that will be a really positive change, but it also has the tendency to make you overwork. Like when no one is watching what you're doing, you actually maybe are producing too much. So we're definitely going to have to try to find balance in that. But I think that it it's a situation where the pandemic has actually given us a, a, you know, a potential sliver of hope for a more flexible future. And then work perks, the perks that actually matter to people. I thought it was interesting you, you put it that one of the number one perks for people is not necessarily free lunch, but natural light. Just being next to a nice open window and, and having that yeah. sun beat down on you a little bit. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by the way that tech companies in particular have created increasingly elaborate perks to try to recruit really high level talent. And so, you know, I was just going through and like looking at all of these roundups of things that like Google or Dropbox, right? Like mini golf, on-site laundry, (laughs) kombucha on tap, right? And it sounds so nice. But what I learned about the science of motivation and sort of the psychology of this is that those perks aren't actually speaking to our real needs. And so they're not going to make us feel more motivated or more satisfied. They're just sort of like, you know, a fun kind of icing on top of the cake. And so what we really need when we go back is to think about, right, like structural things, like how can we design an office place that is conducive to people really focusing on things they care about. So natural light is a huge thing for that. Controlling ambient noise is also important. And then I think too, you know, when it comes to the perk conversation, it's also just about making sure that jobs are actually designed to keep people engaged. Like if you like your job, that's the biggest perk there is. And, you know, no amount of Michelin starred chef made meals is going to accommodate or make up for a job you hate. (laughs) Right. Eleanor Cummins, contributor to Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.